This July, we're spending some time uh, examining the concept of identity uh, as the word speaks of identity, as God speaks of identity, as sort of a response to um, what, at least to me, seems like an increasing pressure, uh, an increasing battle over the concept of identity in our culture, Uh, whether that be identity politics or sexuality or gender. There's a lot of discussion and a lot of heartache uh, and a lot of anxiety over what it means to be who we are and what constitutes who we are. So that's kind of where the idea for this series came from. Last Sunday, uh, if you weren't here, we went through, uh, we started with the idea of God's identity as creator and kind of extended off that in terms of what that means for us, that we are his good creation. Uh, First observing that we are his very good creation. It's interesting in many of the English renderings of the Genesis story, uh, each of the first five days of creation, God looks at his work and he declares it good. But on the sixth day, something changes. The sixth day, he creates Adam and Eve. And at the end of that day, he declares creation to be very good. Something new had been introduced, and it was us. We are also his essential creation. God created us not just as background noise or as decoration for his new planet, but we were created from the beginning to be essential, to be integral to his plans for creation. He made us with good works in mind, and he created us to steward all that he had made. And lastly, we explore the concept of being his cherished creation, that we are loved and provided for. Even when we are frustrating and disappointing God, there's a beautiful moment uh, I shared, this is something I encounter more and more lately, passages in the Bible I've read all my life, and there are little elements that suddenly jump out at me here at 41, like the idea that he clothed Adam and Eve, and the question why. He didn't think they needed clothing, or they'd have had it already. And they didn't really need clothing before their creator, he already knew them. Why would he stop to make clothing in the middle of that story? And I read that as an act of love and kindness. He saw their anxiety, he saw their shame, and he stopped to help address that a little bit. God loved them and embraced them. We are his cherished creation. Today we're gonna look at the concept of value and worth, the worth that God has woven into us, his good creation, through the lens of three stories of God's interaction with humanity in the Bible. But first, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this day, that this is the day that you have made, uh, Lord. Uh, I've got a pile of notes in front of me, Lord, but it doesn't mean anything at all if you don't speak first. Father God, we pray that your spirit would come into this room, and whatever it is that I say, God, we pray that your voice would be heard through your scripture and through your presence with us here today. Lord, speak to that part of us that yearns to belong, that yearns to know our value and our worth. Uh, Father God, help us to find that increasingly in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So when I turned 18 and had just barely graduated from high school, the first job that I had out of high school was for a company called Edison Security. So it was one of these private security places like ADT. In fact, it ended up getting bought by ADT uh, later on. Um, Let's make sure we're on the right slide. Usually here. I always, I get disconnected from my slides. All right, should be blank, good. So if your alarm went off at your house, it would show up on my computer. That was my job. Uh, And actually, Edison Security had armed private security as well. And later on, I ended up uh, being a dispatcher for the armed security, which was some days very exciting indeed. Um, But I remember in the first days of that job, I encountered uh, an ex, I was 18 years old, I encountered a 25-year-old ex-army dude who drove like a souped-up Honda Civic uh, 
he was like, he was like everything I wanted to be in life. And somehow he befriended me and I idolized him. And I followed him around everywhere we went. Uh, and one day he uh, brought me into a side room in the office where they do the programming. And I wanted to be a programmer. So he's walking me into my dream place and introduces me to one of his friends who's like a more senior ex-military guy, also in his 20s, also drove a, a souped up Honda Civic. Uh, and I remember just standing there thinking, these are the guys that represent everything I want to be. And the, the older senior military guy turns around and says, Todd, huh? So what's your claim to, fr to fame? What's your claim to fame? And I remember thinking two thoughts. I remember thinking that is an awesome way to start a conversation. I've, I'm an introvert. I'm awkward in public. I never know how to start a conversation. And he just launches right into it with all the bravado in the world. What's your claim to fame? And the second thought was, I have no claim to fame. This is going to go very poorly. I remember standing there with both of them looking at me, waiting for a response, apparently expecting me to have an equally cool reply. And I finally just accepted, I have nothing. And I, and I ended up just saying it. It like shame overwhelmed me. And I just looked at my feet and I said, I have no claim to, to fame. I haven't done anything. Uh, and that question stuck with me all my life. To this day, I still think about that moment. Although at 18, I didn't quite understand why that had crushed my soul so completely. But in reflection, I realized it put me on the spot to produce my worth, to manufacture my value, and to convince someone that I belonged. And that felt terrible. Have you ever felt yourself put in that position, maybe with a new community or a new job, where you felt pressured suddenly to justify your worth and to prove your value? Have you ever met someone who insists on telling you all about their authority or their influence or their standing in their social circles, seemingly feeling the pressure, even if you haven't asked them, to prove their worth and their value? Have you ever encountered someone who always has to have something to say about everything, who perhaps has started anchoring their value and their ability to comment on anything, whatever comes up? It's easy to get a sense of worth bound up in knowing something about anything. There is a narrative in the world that you have to create your worth, that you have to manufacture your value, that you have to earn your place. And how would the world have us do this? Well, oftentimes, it asks us to work towards an important position in society, or to belong to the right group, to be part of the right tribe. Identity politics uh, is a war being waged hot and heavy in our culture. And it's bound up around which tribe, which community you belong to, which one's the right one, and which one's the wrong one. You're valued if you say the right thing at the right time. And if you say the wrong thing, watch how quickly your value changes in the eyes of many. You have to adopt the right fad. You have to adopt the right clothing. I spent four years in Memphis, Tennessee uh, in high school. Uh, and I remember I... I, I was never a wealthy kid. I kind of grew up in the, in the poor neighborhood. It was one of the, it was one of the bad neighborhoods in Memphis. Uh, and so I went to a school that was kind of poverty stricken. And I remember going to the lunchroom with kids who had almost no money at all, but many of whom would wear like $100 sneakers. And I couldn't figure out how they were coming up with the money for that or why the money would go there. And as an adult, I, I often contemplate the priorities or the pressures that would sit on those children that whatever dollar they ran into, any cent that they were able to save up, it would go to shoes. Because having good shoes was how you establish your worth. It's how you establish your value in that community. That can be a tremendous pressure on a young person or an old person. 
Society calls us to celebrate the right celebrities. Some can seem like they can do no wrong, and some seem like they could never do enough to be viewed as right. We're called to listen to the right music, to like the right social media influencers. These demands are not exclusive to any one political ideology either. You can find this sort of thing in every corner of our culture. But none of this represents what God says about your worth and your value. And as followers of Christ, that should matter to us. No worldly system of value should compete with God's values. So what does God say about our values? Well, let's start by finding the clicker. Oh, my heaven, I did it again. Let's start with announcements. <laughs> so if you're new to the church, welcome. Uh, we've got a QR code there you can scan. We'd love to get you connected. Uh, we've got spiritual warfare classes starting today after service, starting at noon with our brother Kevin here. It's just down here. If you guys go down the stairs, the first classroom, it's called the prayer room, right here on the left is where we'll be gathering at noon. We'll meet for an hour, and Kevin, who has experience with these things, will be leading us through a four-week course on some of the fundamentals and realities of spiritual warfare. We have a women's pool hangout. Saturday, July 29th at 5 p.m. at the Williams House. Thank you, Williams, for hosting this. There's their address there. The Williams are in the back if you want to connect with them and, and get, get all the information on that. All right, and now into my first slide. I'm going to figure that out one day. So we're going to look at three stories in the Bible and kind of examine them through the lens of how God ascribes and invests value in his people. And we're going to start with the story of Abraham and Sarah. This is back in the beginning in the, in the book of Genesis. And we're gonna look at the first idea about God's value. The first concept is that God declares our value and that value is filled with purpose and meaning. So we'll start with Genesis 12. I'm gonna start reading here. This is 12, one through three. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people and your father's household, to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And later on in Genesis 22, God reaffirms this covenant with Abraham and Sarah. I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities and their enemies, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed, because you have obeyed me. In Abraham and Sarah's story, we have an example of God's investment, and the fact that, as far as I have seen in the word, it typically always comes with a purpose, and not just for us. God's blessing and investment in us is usually also for all of those people in our lives, and in the case of Abraham, and Sarah for all the nations of the world. God very seldom gives us something for us just to sit on. It's very seldom just for our joy and for our gloating. And in the declarations of God's covenant with Abraham, again and again and again, God reveals this purpose. His investment and the value that he was building into this senior couple, by the way, they were senior citizens when God declared that they were gonna start popping out babies uh, and producing a, na a nation as numerous as the sand but that wasn't just for their sake. It was for the blessing of the whole world. God's blessing is not a stagnant blessing. His investment in us is not 
a stagnant investment. Now, I'm gonna show a couple slides here and very truly I declare unto you, I'm not trying to bag on anyone's hobby, but this just happens to kind of illustrate the inverse of the way God's blessings go. Some of you may have heard that there is a subset of our culture that will collect things like toys and cards and board games and all kinds of stuff and just leave them in their packages and never take them out and arrange them on a wall and kind of just look at them. This is a collection of things that were meant to be played with that never end up getting played with. They never serve a purpose. They never do their thing. They kind of just sit around looking pristine. That is not God's investment in you. He has not invested in you to park you on a shelf to collect dust. And toys are not the only things that this gets done to. This, people collect dozens and dozens of antique vehicles and they are beautiful and they're wonderful bits of history. But that pickup truck is never gonna pick up anything ever again. And that tow truck won't ever tow a car ever again. There was purpose, there was function in those vehicles when they were made. They were made with a purpose. They were made to serve communities. And collecting them alone, restoring them alone, and then just parking them in a garage doesn't restore them unto a purpose. They don't have a functional value anymore other than just look nice. God's investment in you is different as it was with Abraham and Sarah. He didn't just bless them so that they could walk around feeling amazing and blessed. He blessed them with a purpose. Their value wasn't just for them. Their value was for all of God's creation. And it has been that way since the beginning. In the garden, before the fall, before sin threw everything a little sideways, Adam and Eve had a purpose. They were commanded by God to walk into his creation that he had just arranged and to be sovereign over it on his behalf to take dominion over it and to care for it. Purpose has always been hand in hand with the mantle and the blessing and the value that God invests in his people. There's a uh, ministry in Buffalo, New York. I had the chance to travel to a vineyard out there uh, years back. And there's, I think it was called Jericho Road. Um, and basically it's a ministry set up to help refugees. As you may well know, uh, many people who flee their nations for political or religious persecution or other reasons flee to us. We have the privilege of being a safe haven for many people all around the world. And arriving in duress in a country with a language you don't speak and a culture you don't understand can, as you might imagine, be incredibly stressful. And so Jericho Road is one of these ministries that tries to connect with those people, to meet them, to receive them as they arrive in New York, which is one of the most heavily populated uh, port cities in the world. And so they'll come around and they have staff members from all around the world uh, who speak their language and will help kind of uh, help them understand not just the language and the regulations and the laws, but just the way of America, which is oftentimes very different than the way of other countries of the world. Interesting things we heard, we visited this place while we were there. And one of the coolest stories I heard was that, I forget the statistic now, but it was something like 30% of the staff of Jer uh, Jericho Road were originally refugees themselves. And that institution, that ministry, was a blessing to them so that they could then turn around and be a blessing to the next generation, which I thought is a beautiful example of what it means to have a value and a mantle and a blessing that is not just for you but is for others. That's how, val that's how God's value in us tends to work. The value God has invested into you personally is not stagnant in value. Let's go here. The value God has invested in you isn't trivial either. 
going to read a little bit here from Luke. This is the story of Jesus' birth. This is in Luke 1, verses 26 to 38. And I'm going to drink some water. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will, be a, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am still a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even as Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. I've got a dear friend and brother. I have a growing list of like, goals and objectives in life. One of them is someday to sit in my living room with a rabbi and an imam and a Catholic priest and just talk about the Old Testament and talk about God. Uh, and I've been blessed to start developing some of these relationships early. I've got a dear friend at seminary who, while attending a Protestant seminary, has started to feel the call towards Catholicism. So I take every opportunity I have to sit with my brother, his name's Levi, uh, and, and ask him the hard-hitting questions. There are some things in Catholicism some of them around Mary, that I don't quite understand and I don't quite get. But boy, am I in full agreement of the astounding example that she gives to all of Christendom. What profound faith, if you put yourself in her position, she was probably a rather young girl when this happens, and an angel of the Lord bursts into her room and declares that she is going to bear the Son of God. And rather than freaking out or running out the door or screaming or throwing something at the angel, her response is, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. I think that's absolutely stunning. And it is a remarkable example of the fact that when God invests in you, it's not trivial. In Mary, he invested the privilege of bearing his own son. Now, not all of us will have that honor. In fact, only one of us will have ever had that honor. But none of God's investments in each of us are nothing. None of them are trivial. None of them are coincidental. Nothing that God does is without deep and meaningful purpose. That is the way of his investment in us. That is the nature of the value that each of us carry, particularly as image bearers of the Most High. Let's see here. I thought these were adorable. I, I, I put these in here because attending a, a seminary in Kentucky, I'm now contractually obligated to have at least one slide with horses on it each month, but I, I can't even, you know how you just start drifting around the internet and you suddenly stop and realize, how in the world did I even get here? I, was, I, I ended up looking at horses and things, and I, I thought this was a beautiful representation of uh, the nature of the way that God invests value in us. God's about the family business 
of creation and restoration. And it continually amazes me that one of the things that we are gifted with as human beings is an invitation to be about the family business with God. Could God do it all himself? Of course. It's a wild thing that he would invite us to do it with him. And, and I see a picture of this little girl getting trained by her, I can't tell who that is, but some parent is with her showing her the ropes so that one day she would grow and lead a herd of horses herself. There's a version of that story happening in every single one of us that starts with those initial investments of value and meaning and worth that God places in us. Isaiah 9.6 captures this uh, passage that we hear oftentimes uh, in Christmas. Uh, and I thought I would just read this again, but highlight the unto us business. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He was born unto us. Why would God do that? What an amazing privilege. Surely he could have just arrived all of a sudden, descended into our midst, just walked amongst us like God did in the garden. Instead, God invested that tremendous privilege in humanity and invited humanity to be a part of that amazing, redeeming, reconciliatory story in creation. The value God has invested in you personally is not stagnant, and it is not trivial. I love this. The value that God has invested in you isn't fragile either. It is eternally secure. Now that is 100% bona fide Todd Megerly Photoshopery right there. If you guys have Photoshop, uh, I'm gonna get real nerdy with you for a moment. Content aware fill. You can circle something like you know, a brand name in a picture and just say, replace that, and Photoshop does it for you. It's absolutely amazing. I wanted to include this last Sunday and ran out of time, but I think one of the most important things to remember about our identity and indeed the investment that God has made in all of us is that we were built to last. We were built for eternity. Now, there are things that happen in our lives that are difficult to walk through. There are seasons that are difficult to endure. Uh, if you live through a pain for 70 years, that's no small thing. But I think it's often important for us to remember that 70 years held against an eternity. I remember uh, <laughs> when I was five or six years old, uh, I was running around playing outside on some really rough asphalt, and I, I was in flip-flops, and I somehow managed to stub my toe, and it was gnarly. The front tip of my toe just was hanging off. Like, the, the nail was hanging. I won't get too gross. Anyway, it was insane. And I remember just standing there staring at it, trying to process what, what was happening to my body. And it was excruciating, and uh, I remember being brought back into the house and bandaged up, and there was talk of stitches. Do we need them? Maybe not. Uh, and, and for that moment in my life, that was, that was my world, was that pain and the horror of just stuff hanging off that shouldn't be hanging off. But that was all of a day. And the pain and the healing took maybe a few weeks and held up against the, the fullness of my life. That's a small thing. In the moment, it was everything. But in hindsight, with the benefit and perspective of 41 years now, that was a small thing. Eternity is, should be an encouragement to us in that context, no matter how difficult our days are. We set those against the hope of eternity and joy and healing and wholeness in God. That too is a part of how God has invested in us. A few passages that talk about this eternal promise and the design of God's creation. From John 3.16, we should all know it, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. 
from 1 John 2.17. And this world is fading away along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. And out of Romans 5.21. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Nothing and no one can diminish that value or take you from God's hands. You are built for eternity and he has invested accordingly in you for all time. This gift isn't fleeting or in any danger of running out. It has no expiration date. It is guaranteed by the creator and not subject to any earthly court, social prejudice, or human failing. No political agenda can rob you of your place with God in his creation. No loss of social standing can cause you to lose what God has extended to you in grace by the blood of his son. No personal, economic, or professional circumstance will ever make you ineligible for the gift of eternal life once you have accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord. I want to return one more time to the story of the prodigal son. It's, uh, I think, no accident that this keeps popping up. Uh, Sean was moved to share this perspective from the father, the prodigal father's perspective on Father's Day Sunday. I felt moved to include it from the son's perspective um, last Sunday. And I keep seeing it pop up in sermons uh, and in studies all around me. I have a sense that God is uh, calling us home these days to remember who we are, to remember that we are the beloved, that we are his good creation, that we are valued, that we are children of the king. Last night I was in particular, uh, I was particularly interested in the moment that the father clothes the son again. Now the son having returned home, just to recap shortly, he would have been perfectly happy to be made a lowly slave in his father's house. That would have been infinitely better than the misery that he had just been enduring. But the father is not having it. And he calls for a beautiful robe to be placed on his son and sandals on his feet and a ring on his finger. And the ring on the finger, I'll study this more someday soon because I have a feeling I'm gonna be coming back to this a lot uh, in life. But for many cultures, the ring on the finger was a symbol of belonging to a household. It marked you as a member of the family. You weren't just some person in the building. You were a son, you were a daughter, you were a part of the family. For the father put that ring on the, on the, the child's son is to welcome him home in full status, in good standing in that household, to restore the son's full identity well beyond a servant. I think that's, that's something for us to think about as we contemplate the identity uh, that God has woven into us and the invitation on the table. So we'll get to that in just a moment. I know it's uh, not Christmas, uh, but this morning I, I found myself thinking of the, the words of a popular Christmas song as I thought about all of this business of value and worth. Um, the opening words of O Holy Night. Uh, and I thought I'd just read them to you here. O holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining, till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary soul rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. I felt moved that this Sunday might be a good one as we contemplate identity and value to extend an invitation. For anyone here today who hasn't yet accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, if there's anybody here today felt a stirring in their heart this morning 
a sense of hope or new worth. For anyone who's felt like they've been drifting, they've been a believer, but they feel like they've been getting more and more distant from the Lord. Uh, even if you're on the fence and you just have some questions. I wanted to extend an invitation today and remind you as the, as the song we often sing here that the Father's arms are open wide to you. You're welcome to come forward after the service uh, and we'd love to pray with you and for you and bless you in that journey. We're a community dedicated to the person and purpose of Jesus Christ and chief among that, that purpose is his hand reaching out to you, always desiring that you would come home and find your place and your worth in his ongoing work of creation and restoration. If that is you today, please come find me after the service. We'd love to pray with you. At this time, we're going to move on to communion here. In the final moments leading up to his crucifixion, Jesus shared a meal with his beloved followers in which he taught them to partake of bread and wine in remembrance of him. The bread, or in our case, the crackers, were representative of his body that would soon be broken on their behalf. And the wine, non-alcoholic, represented his blood, which would be shed for the sake of all humanity to reconcile us to the Father and secure us in that eternal purpose. The way we take this together um, is we come down the center aisle and we take the bread and you dip it in the wine and take it back with you to your seat. We like to partake as a community, as a family. So hang on to it in your seat until everybody has it. Uh, and then we'll say a brief prayer and we'll partake together. So feel free to come forward.
Father God, we thank you for the immeasurable privilege of being sought after by you, of being chased down and pursued by the Good Shepherd. We thank you for the extent to which you have gone to bring us home, Lord. We pray that you would help us to keep that before us each day when the world questions who we are, challenges our sense of value in ourselves, God. Help us to remember the price that has been paid for us and what that says about our worth in your eyes, God. Help that to mean more and more to us each passing day until we hit a point, Lord, in our walk where the world just can't take it from us anymore, where we are so secure in our identity that we are unshakable, even in the storm. In Jesus' name we pray this, amen. Well, if you'd stand with me, I'd love to pray for you and bless you as we head out today. Just a reminder again, you're welcome to join us for the spiritual warfare class downstairs. I'm going to hang out a little bit here. If you'd like prayer, please, by all means, come forward. Father God, we pray that you would walk with us into the world, Lord, that you'd remind us that the mission field need not be 50,000 miles away. It can be right outside these doors, Lord, in our city, where there are people in need, people you love people you value and cherish as much as you value us, God. Help us to see them in our midst, God. Open our eyes and our ears to encounter them, Lord. Soften our hearts, slow us down, encumber us, Lord. Stop us in the midst of those that you have called us to love and serve, God. Make us a blessing to all of those we encounter for your glory and the salvation of souls. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Bless you.